Hello and welcome to this, our second part of the Good Friends of Jackson Elias' special episode in which we're talking to parapsychologist C.J. Romer about ghosts to give a little more academic or at least informed background into our recent discussion on our main episodes about ghosts. If you've listened to part one, then you will know that C.J. has already given us some of his background in parapsychology and ghost hunting, and was starting to explain some of the parapsychological studies of ghosts themselves and ideas about what ghosts might be. We're now going to build on that throughout this episode and go into this in a bit more detail. If you haven't already listened to part one, I'd really recommend you do so before diving into this. You, you talk, though, about how ghosts then you know, are pretty well indistinguishable from other people yep. or living people, except the way that they sometimes disappear. Is, is there anything else in the research that typifies a ghost experience like that, other than the fact that this otherwise apparently normal person just sort of faded out of view? Yeah, there's absolutely loads. Um they sometimes they speak or convey message and i mean becky would be your expert here she'd be able to tell you straight off the top of her head all of the different factors and to be honest it gets very very technical but i'll I'll tell you the most interesting aspects okay according to fiction of the 19th century and right the way through cold spots sudden eerie feelings of cold or a room that never is warmed up Mm. that's not doesn't actually appear i don't find that in genuine cases um what you also don't find in genuine cases as i said is ghosts walking through walls they're nearly they aren't headless they're not transparent they don't tend to be demonstratively evil and point their fingers in a terror in a terrifying way but they may actually cause moral this is more interesting bad things seem to sometimes happen in haunted houses how can i put that uh, people who become involved with or obsessed with spirits start to show signs of depression or mental illness or what Crowley termed overshadowing. It's as if the emotions of the past begin to write themselves into the present. You become caught up in their drama, the events of the past. Make... There's loads of wonderful books which deal with that as a, in fiction. And I think yeah. from, my, from my own re- research, there are some cases where you start to see um, but we won't go into that for the moment. There's there's other aspects. I mean, I could talk at great length about the the, the claims of reincarnation and the, the way the parapsychological communities handled those, but those are probably better for Call of Cthulhu scenarios <laughs> because, let's face it, any kind of ghost in Call of Cthulhu has problems, but we'll get back to that yes, in a moment. Yes, First, yes. let's just finish the SPR thing. So, Becky, we've got a huge volume of data that was recorded in the 1880s about the nature of ghosts. And in 1948, there was an analysis done on it by a book by a guy called GNM Tyrrell. And he came up with his theory, which is a window dressing theory. It's basically that the brain designs what I call the metachoric environment. It creates a stage on which you play out by telepathy, a telepathic signal. Now Myers had had a second theory, which didn't get much, um, house room which was oh, what did he call it the meta ethereal plane was a plane that existed uh of ether a, a a hypothetical particle that allowed light to be conveyed through a vacuum mm. and the ethereal was this hypothetical and it was it was just the quantum physics of the time it was the yeah. it was the cutting edge physics that was later proved to be completely unnecessary but he believed that in the ethereal, we left traces that were, again, could be picked up by a human brain and magnified and cause us to see hauntings. And that was the first version of what became the recording theory. But I don't think, I'm very skeptical about the recording theory. I really am. Because it just doesn't seem to work. Mm. And it doesn't work when you compare it. Firstly, it's not very interesting from a scenario writing <laughs> yes. point anyway. Yes, it? yes. Because. You might follow the footsteps and come to the buried treasure, or you might see the victim might convey the story of how she was murdered by the monster by reappearing. 
But the only way I've seen an apparition used effectively is actually much closer to the DEFCO instance and the telepathic sending, which is the beginning of Spawn of Azathoth. Yeah, okay. I'm not going to give it away, but the opening of Spawn of Azathoth has exactly, it starts with a crisis apparition, doesn't it? I actually ran Spawn of Azathoth like 30 years ago, but I actually, I really can't remember for the life of me. Ah, well, if you've still got your copy, you can have a look later at book one and read the first page and you'll see how it begins. Right, yes. Yeah, it uses a crisis apparition as a launching pad for the characters to become involved, the Tuesday Night Society, I think they're called. I haven't actually run it since 85 or whatever, so. Right. But I've got quite a strong memory for, or 87, I think it might be, but I don't know. Anyway. So ghosts, if they're recordings, it makes for a really dull adventure. Yes. So ghosts have to be interactive. Secondly, if you go back to Omar Jones and you look at his Bylands manuscript and you look at the ghosts in his fiction, I've recently questioned the gumshoe approach to this, not not the current Casting the Runes project, but something I think Ken Hyde wrote on his column. Uh, He was talking about how James in ghosts are immaterial. Far from it. James in ghosts are physical. Yeah, absolutely, yes. And yeah, and it's that physical nature which makes it much more interesting from the viewpoint of a scenario writer because mm. a withered, hairy mummy or skeleton or undead thing that manifests and carries out a horrible vengeance is something that the players can oppose using common sense, physical things. They can track it, they can interact with it. Mm. Whereas otherwise, you're re- reduced to the deus ex machina, or have you say it, machina, of having to have the spell or the book or yeah. the bell book and candle or whatever it is that lets you, or have the character who has the psychic power, which then puts them at the centre of the adventure, but leaves everyone else out of the adventure. Yeah. So it's really hard. If you're going to use ghost stories, there must in any Call of Cthulhu scenario, no matter how interesting it is as an investigation, there must be an opposing element or force, whether it's the natural environment or a bunch of cultists or a monster, there has to be something that brings a threat to bear on the players. Yeah, And there must also be a constraint of either time or setting that means they can't just call the authorities or leave or go away normally. But anyway, so we need some kind of opposing threat. And ghosts, if the only threat they manifest is by appearing in the bedroom and sapping sanity points... You know that's a really bad ghost, yeah. Because it it hasn't. There's nothing the players can do about it, and therefore all you're doing is sapping sanity points. You know <laughs> that's not actually an interesting mechanic, is it? It might give them some atmospheric role playing. They might end up sleeping. I mean, I remember once I scared some of my players so much playing the masterwork of Nicholas Forby that they started to accompany one another to the toilet. <laughs> And when, it, when you have two grown men going to the toilet together and both sitting in the toilet while one, you know, does their business, the other one waits, and then the other one, <laughs> because they're too scared, and you're in a small bed sit in Cheltenham, you know, that's quite an effective game, isn't it? Yes, yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> so, yeah, Penelope loves scenarios, superb. The other physical manifestation of ghosts that you get in M.R. James, however, is haunted objects or you know, objects that are somehow yeah. associated with uh, manifestations of the dead. I, is is this something that actually comes up in parapsychology or is this purely an invention of fiction? It's something that comes up a great deal nowadays in ghost research. And I mean, this comes much later on. I mean, in a moment, I'll, if we have time, I'll quickly run through the three eras and what's different in each era: uh, gaslight, contemporary, and nineteen twenties. But oh yeah, I'd love that. Thanks, yeah. Let's go for a movie. If we want a movie that gives us an impression of the eighteen nineties parapsychological explanation of ghosts, there's one fantastic film. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I only got to see it because my girlfriend was watching it. It's called Just Like Heaven, and it stars Reese Witherspoon, I believe. Okay. And it's a romantic comedy. And if you ever have a chance to watch that, it is probably one of the most effective ghost stories I have ever seen. Wow. Okay. And that is very much the... It's it's by far the most accurate to the parapsychological model view of what ghosts are. Interesting. So, just like Heaven, rom-com by Reese Witherspoon. So, parapsychologists have very, very defined ideas about what apparitions are. 
and uh, how long after death they may persist and what may be going on. But they're not necessarily good for Call of Cthulhu. Mm. But Lovecraft himself would have had more sympathy with those ideas because they were defined in opposition to spiritualism. Yeah. You see, in 1888, the SPR splits in two, and part of it becomes the College of Psychical Studies and spiritualism and the belief in the persistence of the dead. And so the parapsychological community that's left, the SPR largely, define themselves as not being spiritualists. So they're not even willing, really, to consider. And although they write Phantasms of the Dead, which I have a copy of here as well, and there are many occasions when they're dealing with the apparitions of the dead, they place a much stronger emphasis on the fact that most ghosts are of the living. Right. So anyway, you've got all this survey data. And in the, in the 1990s, Donald West, who was one of the architects of the repeal of the British laws against homosexuality in the 60s, that's probably the reason he should be remembered, mm. Uh, he did a number of wonderful things in his life, but he worked very hard to decriminalise homosexuality. And DJ West also worked very hard on the problem of what is a ghost. And he decided that the obvious thing to do was by that time, everybody was going on what we would now call cultural source hypothesis, which was in the 50s, in ufology, there was a strong belief in either communist not so much nazi in those days but communist technology that was you know being used against us and invading our skies or little green men the extraterrestrial hypothesis was king mm -hmm. most ufologists believed that we were seeing aliens and it was framed in the possibility of you know possible invasion and then in the late 50s and 60s we have the star brothers and the contactees and then by the six by the late 60s and 70s the extraterrestrial hypothesis was falling out of favour and we were coming into what becomes known as the psychosocial hypothesis, which is that these are modern myths seen in the sky, flying saucers, modern myths seen in the sky, as Jung said, C.G. Jung said, yeah. or they are um, like a magonomia. They are, they are the fairy legends of old retold in modern technological dressing. Yes. So the notion now is that these experiences are shaped around the ideas of the 1950s and 60s and 70s, just as the our theories of what a ghost are seem to reflect the technology of the time. And so in the contemporary area, we find what I call quantum woo, <laughs> which is people invoking all manner of quantum physics explanations without un any understanding of the underlying mathematics yes. to talk unremitting bollocks about new age energies and about you know about quantum energies and about quantum materialization and about how ghosts are yeah. simply undying energy and all kinds of other and although i jokingly call myself an arch wooid <laughs> um my, my tolerance for woo is actually notoriously low and my tolerance for parapsychological woo is equally low but you know i, I i'm friendly with both communities and very much part of the latter <laughs> yeah anyway enough of that so Moving on, so the cultural source hypothesis is that our ghosts reflect something about the spirit of the times yeah. and that they're determined. So we would expect ghosts to reflect the fiction, but they didn't in the 1890s. 1894, Publication and Census of Hallucinations bears no resemblance to the traditional Victorian ghost story. Wow. And then okay. the Edwardian ghost story starts to reflect the the parapsychological tradition rather than the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. So, because people go to the SPR, William James being head of it, Henry James, therefore, is very is fascinated. And in fact, I've never told anyone this before because I keep meaning to write a paper on it, but there's a famous ghost story in Cheltenham called The Cheltenham Ghost. And there are passages of the turn of the screw which appear to have been taken directly from The Cheltenham Ghost huh. or to strongly refer to The Cheltenham Ghost. Okay. Now, The Cheltenham Ghost is the inspiration for the famous ghost story by Susan uh, Collins, The Woman in Black. So interestingly, The Woman in Black and The Turn of the Screw both draw from the same very famous 19th century ghost story here in Cheltenham. Yeah. I find that quite interesting, actually. Yeah. I sometimes go down to St Anne's house and take photos and wander around in the hope of meeting the ghost of Imogen Swindon. Maybe I should tell that ghost story as it's more interesting than this technical bollocks I'm talking about. Let's go <laughs> on anyway. So, ghost stories sometimes, the turn of the screw, the woman in black, both draw from the parapsychological tradition. 
but Hitchcock, the supernatural in television, um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you know, we would expect the cultural to in, to affect the ghosts we're seeing. Does that mm. make sense? Yes, absolutely. Am I, am I making sense? Yeah, 100%. Because every experience we have, falling in love will be defined by Love Island for a whole generation. They will... They will learn how to fall in love by watching television. Well, that's depressing. Well, yeah, I mean, you could probably make an interesting Call of Cthulhu scenario about this, couldn't you? Game shows probably affected how we looked at work and acquisition and capitalism and the way we looked at luck. You know, <laughs> television hasn't had, I say had because it's its a waning force, but television had a massive influence, especially when we only had four channels in how the world was viewed. It, it taught us how to be emotionally literate. So therefore, it must have taught us how to see ghosts. Yes. So a few years ago, Becky and I, um, I started to kick around with Becky, who was a you know young blonde parapsychologist, and uh, she went and dyed her hair, unfortunately. But anyway, uh, so we used to kick around, and we used to go to conferences, and we used to go and stay in haunted hotels, and she was my <laughs> girlfriend. And she said to me, but Chris, the way you talk about parapsychology it sounds like you're really sceptical. I said, well, I'm not. It's just that we've gone from the great era of the telepathic explanation. The spiritualists are still holding to the spiritualist explanation. We've then gone through this whole cultural sourcing where everyone's saying it's just hallucinations and we just it can be explained in terms of literature and film. And she said, what if I recreate the SPR census? And I said, you're insane. You know, it took them 10 years and huge numbers of, you know, incredible numbers of hours of work in the analysis and she said we have computers mm-hmm. and the spr gave her funding and she did it she recreated it uh on a smaller scale but i mean she got two thousand was it responses rather than you know fifteen thousand. but a couple of hundred of them were solid and you know it was one in ten again and she ran the numbers and the numbers were exactly the same basically as the victorian era and she said that's interesting but she was going to look at how the ghost story had culturally shifted over 120 years, uh, no, 125 years. Mm. And after 125 years, she finished her massive, complicated three-year analysis and came out and said, it's exactly the same. Wow. And I said, what? And she said, for the, for the quantitative stuff, you know, the easy-to-measure stuff about times and things. She said the big difference is that we see far more apparitions of the dead than the living. Hmm. Um, apparitions of the living have dropped off, but that could be because if the telepathic hypothesis is true, now when someone dies, rather than an average of two days before you hear by post, we hear within 15 minutes by telephone. Yeah. That's a massive cultural – that's a technological shift. Yeah, And if somebody needs to contact someone desperately, in the past, they would either have to go over and see them or, you know, because the speed of communication was often, uh, even at the time of 1894, there weren't telephones in common usage. 1902, yeah. yes. 1894, less so. So usually it was it was hard to convey. You could send a telegram, I suppose. But yes. now pretty much all of us can contact anyone we need to immediately. So that's her hypothesis for why that's changed. But in every other constant from uh, the proportions in different aspects, when she tested them mathematically, they came out as the same. Statistic, not just roughly the same, but statistically meaning, you know, within statistical terms, they were identical. Wow. Okay. And then she checked through her findings and she found that there's, there's almost no changes. The experience is the same experience. So she came to the conclusion that either neurologically or spiritually or mentally, but in some objective sense, in some objectively real sense, there is a single experience that has been the same and people who experience hauntings are, once you're taken out, you should use the SPR's um, very simple methods to take out the people who were clearly uh, exaggerating or ima- overly imaginative or half asleep or under the influence of drugs. They tend yeah. to write themselves out very quickly. But once you choose the very simple methods to actually test your filter and reduce it to a solid population, they're identical. It's the same experience. So she came to the conclusion that there was something real, and her supervisor said, 
So what we'll do is we'll test against the so-called paradigms. We'll test against each of the models, and none of the models works. What? So, what? and we've discussed a couple of them. We've discussed telepathy. We've discussed the dead. We've discussed coincidence. We could go for a. Um, but there are a number of veridical cases which don't seem to be easily explicable by any single model. And I said, that's fantastic from a viewpoint of a Call of Cthulhu, Keith. And he <laughs> said, why? And I said, because you can just make it up at whatever you want <laughs> and you'll never be proved wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. In terms of parapsychology, you know, oh, what? <laughs> so... Uh. If we had more time, I would go through all the paradigms that she tested for and explain the problems and the advantages of each model. And she did about 40 different models she looked at, and each of them, there are flaws and there are bonuses, but they don't. What we can definitely say is that people appear to be having exactly the same nature of experience that has certain defined characteristics, some of which I've been careful not to reveal for obvious reasons because the research is ongoing and we still want to know. But they're not ones that would be useful to a Call of Cthulhu referee. Yeah, after all that research, did she come up with any kind of hypothesis, or maybe hypothesis even is overstating it, but some kind of personal belief or intuition as to what might be behind all these experiences? She believes, my understanding of her belief, personal belief based on her research, was that there are objective entities that enter our physical reality that may or may not be in some way related to the dead or pretending to be the dead and that appear to take on physical aspects for a brief period of time, interact with the environment and leave again, possibly for the purpose of influencing human behaviour. Now, that's interesting because one thing that I struggle with sometimes in Call of Cthulhu, and this is something we talked about on the ghost episodes themselves, was the fact that traditionally ghosts as spirits of the dead, as manifestations from beyond the veil, don't really fit into the Cthulhu mythos very well. Uh, Lovecraft's creation is a fundamentally materialist one, and putting spirits of the dead in there is just a square peg in a round hole. But if you start looking at these ghostly manifestations, as you say, as being manifestations of some kind of other entity uh, using this form, using this method of communication, then suddenly that does actually work within Call of Cthulhu without you having to fundamentally change what the mythos is. I mean, if we were Muslim, we'd be looking at the Quran and we'd be talking about the jinn, the beings of smoke mm. and flame who exist within our world and take on a form and can interact and then disappear back to their own realm again. Yes. And that was what uh, the editor of Flying Saucer Review, Crichton Brown, decided that eventually decided that UFOs were in fact gin beings of smokeless fl- uh, flame. Yeah. Um, and that was the FSR model in the 50s and 60s. Uh, he, he was converted to Islam by that belief because he said Islam was the only religion which explained those manifestations and the fairy belief, etc. Well, I was about to say that's, that's not really any different than fairies, is it? I mean, you know, it's, it's a different spin on things. No. But, uh, and, and just, you know, yeah, turning I mean, things full circle in, in Irish mythology, if I remember correctly, uh, fairies are the spirits of the dead. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it all ties. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, the spirits of the dead, I mean, the thing is that people who knew the dead and loved the dead or interacted with the dead may carry their memory, and if those things are immaterial. Uh, Loika, is that how you say it? Loika, yeah. as in Colin Wilson's mind parasites, but which become a slightly different thing in Call of Cthulhu. Yes. I mean, they um, they are they are exactly the kind of thing that you might experience cause to experience actually let's let's just go to another bit of parapsychology quickly mm. i mean we're, we're sure. massively over time anyway <laughs> so in 1981 um david hufford who was a canadian anthropologist wrote a book called something about the terror that comes in the night which is a line from um ezekiel or isaiah isaiah i believe it's um about lilith lilith oh, yes. yeah. it's about the ancient Hebrew uh, succubus or demon or, well, she's a demon princess, I suppose. Mm. 
Um, you know her role. I mean, Lilith's yeah. got a really complicated history. Adam's first wife, yeah. Yeah, that's right, yeah. He's talking about the the uh, sleep paralysis experience, about the night hag, about the experience of waking up. And you've got... Well, okay, that's, it's always better to use real examples if I can. So yeah, uh, late last year, Halloween last year, I'm in Newmarket in Suffolk where I've been asked to go and do a presentation on ghosts. And Becky came along with me and they put us up for a couple of days in the hotel. And... It was absolutely pouring down with rain, and nobody was interested in Becky's academic parapsychology stuff, so I was telling ghost stories. So I went out in the rain, and when I came back in, I was soaked and I was snoring. The hotel room's got a little bed down one side with a wall shutting it off from the main room, and then a double bed. So Beck's in the double bed, and I'm in there, and I'm snoring away. And she gets up in frustration, goes, and lies down in the single bed in the hotel room. Anyway. The important bit here is we're in a hotel room separated by only a wall. Mm. And at some point in the morning, I suddenly felt that something was badly wrong. And it was daylight because I'd been up the night before. And Beck was sleeping in late. So I leap out of bed and I stroll around and I say, do you want a cup of coffee? And she kind of twitches and screams at me, get it off me, get it off me. And I'm like, what? And uh, so... And she's really distressed. And I pick her up. She comes into the other room. She staggers through, gets into the other bed. And she says, I was laying there and I was asleep. And this woman came or this thing came and knelt on my chest and it was throttling me and I couldn't move. And she said, and I knew straight away that it was a sleep paralysis experience. Yeah. So I was saying to myself, okay, this is sleep paralysis. I'm on the edge of sleep. It's a hypnopompic image. I know what my brain's doing. According to the theories, my muscles have relaxed so that I don't break my bones in my sleep. It will pass in a few moments, so I needn't be scared. This is, you know, it's ridiculous of me to be scared. I'm not having a heart attack, blah, blah, blah. She was rationalizing it at the same time as she was in terror. I think that's right. I mean, I'd have Hmm. to read her account again. But And then I felt this kind of, she said she heard me get out of bed and come through. And as I came in, it went, it just left her and she was able to move again. Okay. But even though she was consciously aware of what was happening to her, according to the the modern model, she was completely unable to actually do anything about it. Now, one of the things I did for this and for scientific explanations of the near death experience is that I've got a 3d model of a brain uh, program which allows you to light up different parts of the brain so obviously what i like to do is whenever anyone comes out with a new near-death experience model is i light up the different parts of the brain explained in it and again same with sleep paralysis and it looks like a bloody christmas tree because no two models ever offered of sleep paralysis or near-death experience ever <laughs> seem to involve the same oh, parts of the brain uh, or the same chemicals or the same neurotransmitters okay. So there are these things that every few years science re you know, there's 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 so many different competing models for what's going on. Yeah. Which haven't been experimentally tested because it's really hard to do. Yet we always say, oh well there's a scientific explanation for this. But actually there are many competing scientific explanations, none of which is based in anything like empirical evidence. Does that oh, make wow, sense? Okay. So mm, no, yeah. no. I think it makes you a scientist. (laughs) (laughs) It just makes me, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I've read an awful lot of books on the physiology of neurology of the NDE and of the sleep paralysis experience. And I sometimes wonder if we really do understand them at all because they are basically placeholders. Yeah, everybody will tell you that they're scientifically explained. They're not. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that they're not supernatural forces, but are scientific explanations for them. Another example of this from parapsychology is that sceptics, and I am, I was a member of the JREF forum, and on Richard Dawkins' site, I was a moderator for a while, despite being obviously, you know, the anti (laughs) Dawkins, an arch-wooid. But yeah, I was on on rational scepticism, I was twice a moderator for all periods of time, got very well, because I am a member of the sceptical community. I think by nature, I'm very sceptical, even though, I describe myself as a mild Anglican with a, <laughs> with a with a great love of parapsychology. 
But one of the things that you'll often see is that Ouija boards are... Well, how would you describe... How would you explain a Ouija board? I have used one a couple of times, and it does seem to be, I'd say, some kind of unconscious impulse uh, on the part of people using it that I don't think anyone... You know, when, when I used them a couple of times, I don't think anyone was consciously trying to move the planchette, but I think there was some sort of unconscious consensus that built up. And you know, certainly what we what, Yeah, what, that's exactly what it. we ended up producing was just utter wank, but yeah, it it was at least vaguely coherent wank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, as opposed to steaming piles of poodlejism. I'm sorry, I just the idea of coherent wank <laughs> triggered the biologist in me there. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> Please don't ask me how I know about the consistency of steaming piles of poodlejism. It's not an episode I wish to get. No, I'm joking. <laughs> right, okay. Well, we'll, say, we'll say that for another interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's next week we'll be discussing. <laughs> Exoplasm. <laughs> Max will be demonstrated. No, no, stop it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so how the Ouija board really moves, the simple scientific explanation that one reads everywhere, is of course it's not ghosts or demons, it's done by unconscious muscular action, yeah? Yeah. And um now I'm trying to remember the actual term. The ideomotor effect hmm. or idiomotor effect you can say it either way, is always referenced, which is when the muscles unconsciously prepare themselves and therefore... And in fact, I think what's actually happening based on the limited amount of science that's actually being done on it properly is that it's a group consensus. It's a gestalt, as, yeah. as I would say. There's, there's a consensus between the group and that you generate the messages that way. However, I've got quite a good Ouija board story, but I'll save that for another time when we haven't <laughs> been talking for nearly two hours. Um, that actual experience is idiometer. If you look it up in a big book on anatomy and physiology, it means something quite different. The idiometer effect is not something that you will find in medical texts. It's a term that's used in psychology to mean the hypothesis that unconscious muscular action uh, is what leads to the generation of messages on Ouija boards. Mm. Okay. In other words, that's all the idiometer. So it's a yeah. circular definition. Yeah. Okay. The idiometer effect in physiology, if you Google it and look for a definition, means something quite different. It has no relationship to unconscious muscular action and of that type. Are you suggesting then that this is just a uh, just an attempt to sort of explain it away? Yeah, it's a placeholder. We create terms, we create placeholders that sound scientific, and we use terms without actually bothering to check what they mean. But um, I, if you looked at idiomata apraxia, for example, or idiomata, imagine you're pretending to use a hammer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so there's it that's an idiomatter effect. It's it's due to what's it called? Presiopation. It's the yeah. uh, it's to do with how you actually create gestures and move the body and how your sense of where the body is. Yes. But it has the, the idiometer effect as we understand it, the unconscious muscular action and the ability to convey is not something that physiology actually understands. It's a term that is almost completely circular. Okay. Hmm. Um, the models that we use to explain, explain the near-death experience so far are contradictory in the extreme. And in fact, only one of them I can think of has been tested, which was Susan Blackmore's 1994 model. And she actually had the guts to go out there and do some studies on it. And actually, she came up with you know methods that would falsify it, and they, it was falsified. Uh, dying to live was her book. Wasn't there the theory kicking around for a while that the brain produced some natural analog to DMT, and that's why there was such a um, a, a similarity between people's DMT experiences and near death experiences? My understanding of it is, and bear in mind I haven't been involved in psychoactive result research for thirty years, though I was. I still edit. I still um, review for them the uh, annual psychedelic convention breaking conventions papers 
because I do have an academic background on psychedelics because that's one of the things I did after my ghost experience was I went and studied the brain okay. under LSD. Yeah. Back in a period when that was a very dangerous thing to do because the government required you required a home office license, you required government oversight, and I had to do all that. And then just as I was doing it and I was becoming an expert on drugs, the huge rave culture thing of the 80s. Oh, God, yeah. And suddenly, yeah, so doing any kind of research became almost impossible. David Luke at the University of Greenwich has carried on. He's part of the SPR. So the SPR has always via Huxley and others, maintains an interest in the subject. Right, makes sense. I mean, you know me, I'm hardly a, I'm hardly a raver, am I? I'm hardly a hippie. <laughs> no. Uh, I'm no. the last person you're going to find dancing around. <laughs> no. So anyway, but I mean, you know, I, I have got an academic background here. My understanding is that DMT and LSD, um, MDMA, I bought them all and rearranged the alphabet. No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, all of those drugs act as chemical triggers for the existing neural transmitters. And uh, you've got, what's it called? The ghost molecule, they called it. Uh, which one is it? It's not MDMA. DMT. Yeah. DMT, sometimes called the spirit molecule. And if you go and talk to David, he'll tell you about machine elves and yeah. about seemingly objective entities that can be found in the deep wiring of the brain. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, all that research, TKL, PKL, and all that stuff, Oh, God, that takes me back. Yeah, yeah, it's going back away, isn't it? But you know, yeah, this is what I was interested in eighty-seven to ninety-four, roughly, before I I decided to go down a different route because I wasn't getting anywhere in understanding apparitions through it. I spent seven years trying pretty hard to work out how brain chemistry correlated to. I mean, the problem is that brain chemistry correlates to every human experience, whether it's eating ice cream, a mm. religious experience. I mean, do you remember neurotheology? Uh, no, I don't think so. Persinger, a Laurentian professor up in Toronto. Um, can't remember which university, but he was... Persinger built the God Helmet that basically placed your brain... Oh, yes! ...in a neutral magnetic state, and he claimed that it would indu- it induce powerful religious experiences. Yes, and yes, yes. Loads of people. Sue Blackball, the great skeptic, was a huge enthusiast for it, and loads. I was invited to go and try it. Uh, unfortunately, they you had to sign a disclaimer that said you were willing to accept the possibility that things like spontaneous aneurysm may result from having your brain. And I thought, no, I don't right. really want to have my brain stimulated to that level. No, no. I'm, I'm, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll review the I'll review the experiences of others. <laughs> <laughs> but the SPR did send a number of people and. One of the people people who was sent was Dawkins, and I I love Dawkins' response because it was a flat. I didn't feel anything, really, and he really wanted to have a religious experience, but yeah, Dawkins didn't, and he was quite disappointed because he he wanted to feel it, you know, he wanted, yeah. to. and he said no, I didn't, and then a few years later there was a huge amount of excitement about this and about transcranial stimulation and stuff, and then another uh, person working at Lund, I think in on the edges of the field. Uh, he, Pierre Grandquist, I can't pronounce it, I'm assuming it's Pierre Grandquist. Uh, well, that's how you'd say it in Danish anyway. Hmm. He um, recreated the experiments, but he noticed one slight problem, which is that when the helmet is on, it makes a strange buzzing noise, and you know it's on because there are lights, etc. And you're told before the experience what you're going to experience. Right, yes. And then you have a strong religious experience. So he simply changed it so that it was impossible to tell when the machine was on and when it wasn't. Yeah. And he ran trolls. And what happened was that once you'd taken away the effects yeah. of signing disclaimers to the effect that your brain might be fried and putting your head in the helmet and having it stimulated and the buzzing lights and the being told everything in bonds, you got absolutely nothing set and setting there. So it was pretty much a placebo. Yeah, yeah, well, that's what Granquist said. And I mean, um, Persinger's dead now, I believe, but Persinger came charging back and and said, no, it's not, and this is why. And there was a, there was a, a healthy debate in the neurology journals, and about halfway through, I, I was pretty certain that, Gr- that Granquist was right and that Persinger was wrong. And one of the things that did that was Becky's supervisor's supervisor, Vic Tandy, died tragically young, but he was at the University of Coventry. 
and it was him and Tony and um, yeah, there, there's a three of them up there. Anyway, we won't go into details of that. But hmm. Vic was working in a lab one day and he was sharpening a fencing foil when he noticed it was vibrating. And it was a part of the lab that had a reputation for being haunted ah. and for things being seen out of the corner of the eye. And he looked around and he couldn't understand why it was vibrating. And he eventually decided that a fan opposite was generating infra- infrasound just below the human capacity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he worked out what became infrasound. I think it's bollocks. Really? Okay. Um, but I think it's true what he said. I think that was vibrated. And yeah. Because, because again, we did discuss this a little bit on the podcast when we, you know, we were talking about possible sources for hauntings, and I, I remember reading about this, and I also remember reading about parapsychologists doing studies into haunted sites, possibly being on top of um, things like underground rivers or you know, oh, yeah, geolo- no, geological s- structures that would shift, and that possibly the infrasound yeah. was responsible for creating that sense of dread and hallucinations. All right, let's deal with this quickly then, because this might be interesting to include. So Tandy comes up with the theory, mm. and then what happens after Tandy's theory is that they go down to the Tourist Information Centre in Coventry, and they discover the haunted basement there, and they go down, and they're able to record infrasound down there on the frequency predicted. Uh, they write a paper called Something in the Cellar, which you can download from Richard Wiseman's website, or if anyone's interested and wants to get in contact with me, I can send them a copy of the paper. Because Vic... It's quite the SBR are quite happy for it to be, you know. And what that paper does is it suggests something quite technical. Um, but in the period when it became very popular, the early 2000s, a large number of investigators from the skeptic movement in particular decided that infrasound caused the eyeball to vibrate and generated feelings of unease, which caused human beings to hallucinate apparitions. Mm. Yeah. So that was the basic theory, and it it falls into a whole set of what I call environmental theories of ghosts. Um, I had actually popularised one in the 1990s when I'd suggested that piezoelectrical fields generated by uh, fault lines under pressure might be significant, might generate significant voltages, which could possibly induce some kind of hallucinatory episode. Mm. And I produced a episode of Ghost Hunters, uh, the 1990s documentary, in which I argued that if you look at the distribution of hauntings, well-attested multiple witness cases of hauntings over a period of years over Gloucestershire, and then you place them on a map of fault lines, there's a very strong correlation. Okay. Including in places that you would not expect to be haunted. Uh, I no longer think that there's that much to that theory. It's true, but I'm not sure it's particularly useful. But uh, to go into the reasons why would be deeply technical. Yeah. But throughout the 1990s, there was a whole period, and uh, infrasound became very popular with skeptics in the parapsychology movement. Richard Wiseman was strongly associated with it, Kieran O'Keefe, and a number of other people. And they did things like they went to Hampton Court Palace and they asked people where they would what what areas they thought were most likely to be haunted and they asked the, the people with experiencings there to mark on maps and they measured infrasound at those areas and then Kieran O'Keefe attempted experiments involving bombarding the audience with what he called silent sound to try and provoke emotional and religious or feelings of fear in a series of concerts and it became this idea that infrasound could be used to provoke fear is something that we find if you read the kind of... I mean, I think they've actually classified some of the experiments with it now that were Hmm. from the Ministry of Agriculture because people were claiming that windmills generated infrasound and had bad effects on human health. And there's there's, there's colossal amounts backwards and forwards there. The one person who actually writes a lot of sense and who I think still I respect on the subject is Steve Parsons, who's very much part of the parapsychological community, He'd hit me if I said that to him, because he, he would say, I'm a ghost hunter. Okay. But he's a member for the SPR Council. He's a member of ASAP, and he's a great guy. He's down in Pembrokeshire, and he's written a book called Paraacoustics, which covers the science of the paranormal and sound. And although it's a bit out of date in one area, it's very, very good. It's certainly for someone who 
it's very technical, but it's readable by the it's the general reader could get something out of it, and I'm sure it could inspire some haunting um, Cthulhu adventures. Yeah, but long before Tandy had his experience, um, Marcus L. Rowland. Oh yes, wrote yeah. a scenario for um, his Forgotten Futures. Yes, back in the eighties, fantastic Konaki. Yeah, that hints at a use of in. It hints at infrasound having strange effects. Okay. And that is actually long before science did. Huh. It's a shame it wasn't a call of Cthulhu scenario, but it's for Konaki, the ghost finder for Forgotten Futures. Yeah. And yeah, that's that's possibly the earliest reference I have found to the infrasound theory. Weird, isn't it? Yeah. In gaming, it then appears in real parasite. <laughs> And then it falls out of favour again. I'm trying to remember whether that comes into the Haunting of Hill House at all, because uh, I, I don't know if you've ever read the Haunting of Hill House, but there's all sorts of um, Shirley Jackson's yeah, original yeah. book. Yeah, there's all sorts of things that yeah. are wrong with Hill House that unsettle the mind. Yeah, yeah. and and I'm trying to remember the unsettled the, recipient. Yeah, the, yeah. I, I'm trying to remember whether the sound played into that or whether it was all visual. But I mean, it's, it's a similar idea. But I think, yeah, there it was, you know, primarily architectural and visual, rather than there being any auditory uh, side to it. Parsons has said that you know that Richard Wiseman, who's a very famous British professor of the public understanding of science, and uh, which is a again a a seat endowed for that purpose by skeptics, and which is he's argued that actually there's only one problem with Wiseman's Hampton Court experiments, which are on the website, and you can read the papers for yourself, which is that they're all bollocks. <laughs> and he's argued. The, the actual issue with them oh. is not with the methodology, which is fine. It's with, the, it's with the technology they employed, which could not measure the frequencies or do what it was they wanted to do. Oh, okay. Uh, but therefore the, the results they've got are meaningless because the, the actual their knowledge of acoustics wasn't up to the job and the equipment they were given and the calibration on it wasn't adequate. Yeah. And that therefore they're just seeing what they want to see out of random noise, literally random noise. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 so if, you, if you read paraacoustics, you'll, you'll see quite a withering response from someone who actually does not, I believe, believe in ghosts at some level, but who's done far more experiments with infrasound mm-hmm. than anyone else. Now, the misunderstanding, it, this leads me to the trip to Jerusalem, and uh, I won't name them, but a very prominent British sceptical organisation who was sponsored by a very prominent American magician. Um, they went there, and they took people down into the basement, and they drew a circle and tape on the floor. And the ye olde trip to Jerusalem, supposedly Britain's oldest pub, is yeah. always meant to be haunted. And there's, there's a spot there where infrasound is generated, and the infrasound there um, comes when they turn on the fan, and they <laughs> said that's what causes. And so they gave people a piece of paper which said, "Right, when you stand in this spot and the fan is on, do you suddenly start to feel feelings of dread or unease <laughs> when you're left alone down here? We're going to turn the fan on. You're going to stand in a circle. We're going to be measuring the infrasound using this infrasound meter, so you'll be able to see, you know, the infrasound levels." Do you feel feelings of dread and unease? Do you start to see things out of the corner of the eye? Do you feel like something might be creeping up behind you? Do you feel a dark presence? You know, and so on. <laughs> so You've got this really prime. And they, they show it to the person <laughs> to read it, prime them to the nth degree. Yeah. yeah. Get them to stand in a circle that's marked clearly, <laughs> turn on a huge, bloody great fan. Yeah. And then say, oh, look, and the device is going to show the presence of infrasound. And then they record them for 10 minutes. And then they come out and they do a, they do record the interview and knock off when the people say, did you experience corner of the eye things? Yes, I did. Oh, God. Did you ex- Scott, can you now feel, can you feel a presence? Can you see, yeah. if you look around, can the listeners at home, I'm now generating mysterious CJ <laughs> sonic effects. Can you now start to feel that? No, you see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they published this, and I, I asked the obvious question, which is, so what double blinding, what controls did yeah. you use? What? Oh, fuck it. And this is a society, this is a sceptical organisation promoting good science. Yeah. 
yet they had not bothered to build any controls in. Yeah. Whatsoever. There was nothing. There was no double blinding. I mean, you know, we'd use triple blinding. And also, just as an aside, I mean, I ha- I have gone drinking in the old trip to Jerusalem before, which, you know, for, for listeners who aren't familiar with it, is this, as you say, you know, reputedly the oldest pub in the UK is in Nottingham, and it's built into a cave system. Uh, so it's a really weird looking place to begin with, because a lot of it is just carved out of uh, sandstone. And... If you spend any time in the back rooms there, uh, which are fairly dimly lit as well, uh, yeah, all right, it's a pub and there's lots of other stuff going around. But, uh, yeah, just in terms of the visual cues and the kind of place it is and the history and just the weirdness of the place, I'd be more surprised if people didn't have strange experiences there. Yeah, plus booze, of course. (laughs) The other thing is that they said that the experiences were happening in one particular beer cellar near the beer cooling fan, and could therefore all be explained by infrasound, but they, they ignore things like stories of... Is it is that the place where the cursed galleon? I can't remember, but I dug up Mark um, Alexander's 1973 book, Haunted Inns, because one of the things I'm very fond of doing is looking at how ghost stories evolve and change. And when I looked it up, the ghost stories in that book for, for that pub were not in the locations where they were testing the infrasound hypothesis. <laughs> Which okay. seems like a now again, uh, Warwick Castle. Warwick Castle. When most haunted went there after I'd worked with them, so it's about two thousand and five to two thousand eight, somewhere in that period. They record a whole series of ghost stories and anecdotes about the ghosts that have always haunted Warwick Castle, and you would expect these to maybe go back to the Victorian era, and that there's some of these stories that sound very traditional, you know, happened years ago. But when I then found uh, in 1990, I had a local newspaper from the area had published a guide to the ghosts of Warwickshire. Mm. And they'd covered a load of reports from people who worked at the castle at that time about the ghosts they had experienced at the castle and the folklore of the castle. And in 18 years, it had changed beyond any recognition. Huh. Okay. The locations were sometimes the same, and a couple of the ghost stories were the same, but a large number of the ghost stories were completely different. That's okay. Um, It's different, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, do you have any uh, theories about that or hypotheses about that? Um, Only ones about the nature of, well, partly to do with the nature of haunting, but more to do with folklore and the way in which stories mutate and, yeah. I mean, folklorists Mm. will, will give one set of explanations, and this way lies the phantom hitchhiker and madness. And I'd love to talk about that, but we've been talking for over two hours now. So I think realistically, <laughs> yes. have a quick look at which questions we still need to answer. So are there any questions you'd like to ask? Um, oh, actually, actually, infrasound. The original theory, just so you know, is actually not the presence of infrasound. My problem with that is ubi- it's ubiquitous. The wind going over the roof will t- generate those frequencies. Yeah. If you walk down the street, you know, your traffic going past will generate those frequencies. Tandy's original hypothesis, if people actually bothered to read the paper, was that the infrasound was generated at those frequencies, travelled from the speakers, hit a wall, bounced back, and the point at which the sound bouncing back crosses the sound it being emitted causes a standing wave, an acoustic area, a line across the room with a particular spot, and it's that one single position where there's a standing wave effect which generates the... That's my understanding of it anyway. So it's much more specific than just the presence of infrasound. That's interesting. Okay, yeah, and that does make a bit more sense. Yeah, so the original paper has been completely misinterpreted by almost everybody who's read it because they've failed to pay pay attention. They've paid attention to the interesting bit, the sexy bit of the frequency and the idea of the eyeball and all that, but they've they've not paid attention to the other conditions which he says have to be present. So then just to wrap things up, as you've touched upon a few times, you've got uh, a second career outside of parapsychology and academia as an RPG writer, because obviously you know where the big bucks are. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I follow the money, yeah. 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 Uh, 
And you mentioned in passing that you're working on some stuff for the Casting the Ruins RPG. Is there anything in particular um, you know, along those lines that you'd like to plug at the moment? <laughs> um, no. Um, uh, Casting the Ruins RPG is based on the ghost stories of M.R. James. It's by Paul Singen Macintosh and published by Design Mechanism, who did um, an earlier version of what of uh, the RuneQuest rules, RuneQuest 6, weren't they? Yes. Wasn't it? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it uses the Gumtree system by Pelgrain, and um, it's a genteel game of Edwardian horror. It's different to Call of Cthulhu in many ways, uh, because it's based in the Ed- Edwardian era and the ghost stories of that era. And I think it will have a slightly different appeal, and possibly a much more narrow one, but I'm writing some stuff for them just for fun at the moment, and they've commissioned me to write a book, hopefully. And uh, I'm still writing other role-playing game companies, so we'll see how that goes. But I don't... don't, It it seems a bit... I can't think of anything that I particularly want to advertise or plug. It's not really me, is it? I just (laughs) like to whisper on about ghost stories. I think... Possibly, my my greatest regret for today is that we didn't spend more time talking about how to use them in Call of Cthulhu, and we spent so much time. And the last thing that you mentioned, Lambert's 1953 Underground Water Hypothesis. God, there you go. It's like the uh, Philadelphia Mass Turbulence of 1957. We need to talk about that. That's a Ghostbusters (laughs) quote. Anyway, (laughs) it's lovely to talk to you, Scott. Yes, thank you very much, CJ. So, yeah, th- thank you very much for being so generous with your time. And yeah, I you, you say that yeah, you, you're. Uh, it's a shame we didn't get to talk more about Call of Cthulhu. But I mean, it's it's always lovely in Call of Cthulhu to actually have some basis in you know the real world to draw upon for the games and i think the details that you provided here about parapsychology and about hauntings and about theories about ghosts are absolutely essential to using them in to create verisimilitude in the call of cthulhu game so thank you so much for that i would hope that my old parapsychologist handbook monograph i don't know if it's still available from chaosium but if you can get a copy of the pdf i really think you'll find it has a great deal of material that will help you both investigate hauntings successfully and run Call of Cthulhu adventures. <laughs> so, there you go. That's my plug. <laughs> well, if it, is, if it is available, I'll put a link in the show notes. There you go. A book that is making me no money whatsoever, maintaining my perfect <laughs> score of utter, utter... <laughs> It's not just that it's not making you any money. It's not even written under your real name, is it? What what name is it published under? Oh, um, Chris Jerome. It is. The reason was <laughs> that um, Lynn was it. Lynn's daughter uh, did the cover, and I can't remember. Somebody did the cover, and my name is Christian Jensen Roma, but that wouldn't fit on the cover in anything like a sensible font. <laughs> so they said should we contract it? So I said, sure. So it became Chris Jerome. <laughs> if only I thought of just using CJ. <laughs> I never realised that. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, it was, so it would, it would, it wasn't a particular pseudonym. It was just so I've written a load of books like, under names like Chris Felster and other names for gaming companies, just because I was an academic <laughs> at the time working in an RE department or because I was working in Parasite and good God, God knows it would be terrible, wouldn't it, if my academic my reputation was sullied by association with games when I work in such a respectable field as parapsychology. But <laughs> no, <jokes aside. laughs> I think it's the only field in the world where playing D D would probably be a big step forwards in terms of credibility. But it was actually that it wouldn't fit on the spine. So I became Chris Jerome. So there you go. Right. Well, that's another mystery of the ages solved. <laughs> well, thank you again, CJ. Thank you for your time. And uh, yes, I, I imagine this will prove very, very useful to a lot of people out there. <laughs> Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com Scott, last thing. I'm going to predict, I'm going to make a psychic prediction, yeah? Yeah. I'm going to predict that within one month of 
reading this show, or uh, sorry, I've listening to this show, anybody if they watch uh, the news headlines will see scientists explain ghosts by <laughs> as a new head. Okay. Okay. And um, I will predict, and I will also predict that I will turn up again and just briefly spend one minute on your show saying, you know what? It was bollocks. <laughs> but I predict within the next month you will see the headline Scientists Predict Ghosts because I am psychic. So there you go. <laughs> Brilliant.